Welcome to the Legacy Leaders Podcast. Are you doing the best for your client to help them create their legacy? Are you creating a plan that goes far beyond finances to help people ensure that it becomes the driving force behind all decisions? On this podcast, hosts Katie Beth Hand and Stan Miller will help you with growing your practice and your client's peace of mind. Together, they bring the best and brightest minds to share with you how to help your clients develop their best legacy. And now, here are your hosts, Katie Beth and Stan. Welcome back to the Legacy Leaders Podcast with your hosts, Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. Our guest today is the founder and chief executive officer of Fusion Family Wealth. It is a Long Island-based, fee-only, registered investment advisory firm, and we are so excited to have Jonathan Blau with us to give us all of his wisdom today. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you guys so much for uh, having me as a guest on your podcast. Very much looking forward to uh, getting to know both of you and sharing whatever I can that's helpful. Perfect. That's great. So before we dive in, I always like to take our guests back a little bit and ask you about your background and really what got you interested in finance and into this industry. Sure. I grew up with my immediate family where I had some challenges because my dad, when I was 11, became paralyzed having had a stroke as a result of having rheumatic fever as a young child, and then uh, lost him when I was 13. And I had another part of my family, my mom's side, that was very successful. And and but I was I was in a different place with my immediate family than that part of the family. So I always saw the money side on their side, but I never had the money on my side. And so it gave me two entirely opposing perspectives. And and so that was when I became interested in su- successful planning and work ethic that I learned from my grandfather, just w- learned by watching him and, and what all that meant. So then as life went on, in the summer of 87, I became an intern at Lehman Brothers. And I learned a lot about uh, what the business kind of entailed, at least back then. It was more stock brokerage than advisory in nature, but it's at least I learned a little bit about what motivated people in the business back then. And and I learned what I didn't want to do because they were at Lehman Brothers in the 80s. They were actually operating the same kind of an organization that Jordan Belfort was operating four or five years after I entered, meaning 1989, except they were selling stocks trading from five to six dollars instead of 50 cents to 60 cents. And uh, I actually started writing a book then called The Crumbling Wall when I was 23, right after I graduated. And I reflected on my internship uh, summers saying that what I witnessed is not a, a venerable investment bank, but an operation that hired people to sell stocks and use the investment banking name as an imprimatur to be able to get people to trust them. And what ended up happening is I predicted in that first chapter, I only wrote a chapter because I decided if I ever published that that book or tried, I might not be able to make it in the industry. So I only wrote a chapter. And in that chapter, I predicted the uh, demise of Lehman Brothers. Uh, That was when I was 23. So that's 23 years ago. And I will be writing a book starting next year, and that will be my first chapter of it. I love that. Yes. So that that got me very interested in learning the right things to do. So I went and got my MBA in accounting, master's in tax, to learn what wealthy families needed to deal with technically in order to succeed. And I wanted to use that knowledge to then come into the advisory business on the financial advisory side. 
Very cool. Stan also has written a book, so he can, I'm sure, share all of his tips and wisdom with you on that. It's a, a long and difficult process, certainly. Talk to us a little bit about, you mentioned on, on your website, it was very interesting. Talk to us about why you think investors have a generally flawed system of b- both beliefs and behaviors. What is that? Yeah, so that's a good question because it gets to the heart of what we do to try and help people, which is to alert them. Most of us, when we read about behavioral biases, especially those of us who are entrepreneurial and very successful, we'll be reading about the behavioral biases that drive poor decisions, particularly when it comes to money. And when we're reading it, we think we're reading about these poor people that have these biases. We don't recognize we're actually reading about ourselves. And the more overconfident we are, the the, the worse we are at admitting, hey, my name's John and I'm a behavioral failure. The Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Right. Say that. So there's two, as you mentioned, systems that we have that are flawed. One is beliefs, one is behavior. So I'll start with the beliefs. The belief system, there's really two beliefs, and they're both related. So one belief is if I have my wallet, so I'm going to do this with you guys as I do it with the the CPEs that I, the, the CPAs that I offer continuing ed and behavioral finance. So if I hold this up and I say to you, I'm holding up a $20 bill, but no tricks. What's the first thing that comes to mind? One word, if you had to describe what I'm holding up. Money? Yes, that's it. See, we didn't prepare this. But 99% of the people will say money. And that's the first flawed belief because we don't know the difference. We, all of us, successful entrepreneurs, people with PhDs in finance, people who just inherited money and never went to college, they don't. we don't know the difference between this, which is not money, it's a currency unit, it's a peerless medium of exchange. So my grandfather, who sold Bialis, which are like bagels, he brought those to our country. He didn't have to go to the Buick dealer. Some people listening might not know Buick. So he didn't have to go to the Tesla dealer to say, how many Bialis do I have to give you for the Tesla? This is a currency unit, and I can affect that exchange in the most efficient way by giving you a number of these instead of my, my, my food that I sell. And, but it's not a store of value. See, most investors, most people think that if I have 10 million of these $20 bills, and as long as you perfectly preserve them as my advisor for the next 20 years, as the most important element of what I'm asking you to do is just make sure I don't lose them, then I'm okay. I don't want to take any big risks. And so they think if they still have 20 million of these in 20 years, that they've done okay. At least they didn't lose anything. But in 20 years, I need 40 million of these almost in order to buy what 20 million bought today. So money, to me, the only rational definition of money is purchasing power. And this is a currency unit, not a store of value, not money. So that's the first flawed belief. Because we believe that, and because the industry that advises us on how to protect this also believes that the advice should be based on that, they tell us to engage in strategies that protect, protect the currency units from even fluctuating. They call that volatility. So the second flawed belief in that system, first is money and currency is not the same thing, is that risk is not volatility. Volatility really, the way I I look at it when I hold up this dollar, the $20, is if I have 10 million of these, volatility means that I am thinking and the industry is advising that I should control how often and how steep the number of these $20 bills fluctuates. I, I, today I have 10 million worth, tomorrow I only have nine and a half million because the market fluctuated. And they think I should protect against that fluctuation. 
And so risk is not volatility is the second flawed belief. Risk to me is the chance that my last dollar might leave me before my last heartbeat. And so every plan that we design is designed to mitigate that risk. So when we now take those two flawed beliefs, we understand that the industry advice which is to engage in what's called asset allocation. We've all heard about the 60-40 portfolio and so forth. So asset allocation, and the reason that's the industry advice is there's a guy named Markowitz who in the 50s won the Nobel Prize for his work on putting together portfolios like that to account for what he called risk, volatility, and return and comparing them. And so the industry adopted that as their definition of risk. And they tell you to protect against this, what I call illusory risk, this movement of the number of dollars temporarily, we're going to give you more bonds. And the bonds are stable. So the more bonds you have, and the more of them you should have as you get older, they tell us, because you want to protect against the fluctuation of the number of dollars more as you get older. So what they're really doing with that advice, the asset allocation advice, is they're telling us to freeze the purchasing power of every dollar that they tell us to put in bonds for the entire maturity of that bond, for the entire duration of the maturity of that bond. And in doing that, what they're doing is they're killing our wealth. And so it, it, what happens is with those two flawed beliefs combined with how we think about money as human beings, we're much more concerned not with how much money we have accumulated, but we're much more concerned with the thrill of making more money or I should say it another way, the change in the value of what I have, as opposed to the overall value that I have. So I'm not concerned. I have 5 million today. I might have only thought that I'd have 3 million. It doesn't excite me anymore. I've had it for a while. But if the market goes down 10% and now I only have 4.5 million, that really concerns me. And so I'm much more concerned about the change. At the same time, I'm much more sensitive to loss than gain. It's been proven that there's something called loss aversion bias. We feel the pain of a loss two times greater than the pleasure of a gain. So because of those two things, being more sensitive to change and particularly much more sensitive to loss, we look to engage in strategies that that, that can minimize the short-term loss. Those are bonds. Those are putting it in cash, money market. Those are the same strategies that will also ensure that we minimize the long-term value. So we don't want to do that, but that's the conundrum. So when we measure risk and safety and summarizing that second flawed belief in terms of protecting principle, not from disappearing, but even from fluctuating temporarily, instead of measuring risk and safety in terms of protecting what we need to protect, purchasing power from eroding due to 3% trend line inflation for the rest of our lives, compounding. We make the wrong decisions. And when you throw in our biases, loss aversion and the sensitivity to change of value instead of overall value, we're doomed just on those two flawed beliefs. Does that make sense? It does. Yes, absolutely. So, so one of the things people will ask me then is, so you don't, they say, Jonathan, so you don't believe people should have bonds. So I don't say that. So I'm going to just, I want to, for your audience, I want to make clear what we view as the role of bonds for what we call wealthy people. That's who we advise, but for anybody, any investor. So I look at the role of bonds. We don't believe in asset allocation per se, 60-40, having bonds to reduce volatility. We believe that the bonds or cash, we, we're indifferent. So two, three years ago, we would have had cash in, instead because we weren't getting paid anything to go out and buy bonds. Today, we can buy a one or two year treasury and get 5%. So we might put that short term money there. 
But in, in any event, the reason we want to have that is we want to have two years living expenses set aside outside of equities, outside of stocks. And the reason we want to have two to three years is because the average from a peak to a trough in the market, and the S&P is an example, and back, round trip has taken 40 months since the 20s. So as long as I have two to three years living expenses, I protect against what, what I call the sequence of return risk. So we all have heard long term for 100 years or so, stocks have made about 10% a year. What we don't know ever is the sequence of the returns in between now and the next 30 years of our investment life. Will next year be down or up and, and to what magnitude? And so to protect against the risk that the first year or second year of retirement could be starting, for example, I start investing in February of 2020, next month is down 34%. I wanna be protected in the sense I don't want to have all stock investments and have to liquidate my losses to get my spending needs met. So having two to three years in bonds there effectively eliminates or mitigates that sequence of return risk. By doing that, the industry advice, let's say on average, you'll tell someone who's retiring to be 60, 40, 40 being the bond percentage. Out of 10 million, they're going to have an extra 3 million in bonds. That's going to be frozen in terms of the 3 million in principal and the interest that it's shooting off. I don't care what rate it is, five, six, seven. It's frozen for, for the next 10, 20, 30 years. If that extra money, that extra 3 million that wouldn't be recommended to be in bonds in our model was in equities, and equities just made, let's say, 7% a year for the 30 years, it would be about 25 million instead of 3 million when the client's passing their wealth on to the next generation. So think of the magnitude of what asset allocation advice, along with these biases and flawed beliefs due to money, right? So that's hopefully that answers your first, the flawed belief system. It does. That was a, a great and very thorough answer. Stan, I know you have tons of questions. What do you have for Jonathan? Yeah, this this is really fascinating to me. I'm hearing where you're coming from on this, and, and I just heard one of your takeaways about how you think about how much cash or, bond, or bonds you need. But what, what are some other takeaways? When you have a new client who comes in, I guess I'm curious about what's the process look like about how you go about educating the client to bring them around to a point of view that, in your view, represents a, a healthier long-term relationship with their wealth. It's not always the same, right? So we, we get to know each client as we're starting off the meeting. And then I, I approach our practice the same way a doctor approaches theirs. We're not trying to sell something to them. We're trying to diagnose and prescribe. In my world, I'm trying to diagnose the biases that lead to the poor decisions that they most seem to have as obvious to me, and then prescribe the, the solution. But what I try to do is I start with questions. Right? That's the first way to answer what you're asking. So if you were a client, just to do a little role play, I would say, what are, what are the most, what, what do you hope most will happen to you financially for the rest of your life? Then you can just answer. Yeah. So if I were answering that question, it would be, I want to be sure I've got the, the income with a safety net cushion to be able to do all the stuff my wife wants to do. And I want to go with her when she does it. Okay. And we're meeting for the first time today. Until today, have you had any specific thoughts of your own onto what might be the best way for you to get that accomplished? I wake up every day with ideas about that. I probably, I'm sure I bring my biases to the table, but unlike a lot of my clients, I will say, you know, a lot of people have 
huge amounts of cash. I, it's amazing how many people I sit down with who have who have money just sitting in large amounts of money sitting in checking accounts. That you know, isn't and, earmarked for a specific expense. Exactly. That, yeah. Before I go further, let me address that if I can. Yeah. There's, this goes right to the heart. I, I, and I, when I meet people like that, which happens to your point all the time, I first say to them, this cash you've accumulated, is there anything that is allocated for spending-wise, tax-wise? No. Okay. So I say to them, I'm not going to ask you, and I'm going to tell you. There's one of three reasons or a combination of all these three that will explain why you have this cash, because now I'm starting to help them get past this block that they've got on their investment approach. And there's one of three reasons. One is you don't have a plan. <laughs> Two is you have a plan and it betrayed you. <laughs> it doesn't work. It didn't work. Three is you made a, a decision with this money, some sort of investment decision at some point, and the outcome was so horrible that regret aversion bias is the bias that comes into play. In order to ever regret Having made a decision like that again, we revert to status quo bias. Leave it in cash. And at least I know I won't have to regret that. It's one or all three of those. And so the way you get through that is now they'll tell you what it is. If they're honest, they can say, and this just happened to me two months ago. A client said the client lost their husband a number of years ago, and the husband had run the, the entire financial picture. I've been dealing with this client's mom who's in her 90s now for 25 years. And the client finally, after having lost her husband a few years ago, reached out and said, "I'm now I'm ready to deal with my money. I haven't, I wasn't ready to deal with it. My husband dealt with it. It's, it's too emotional for her to kind of. To, so now she's ready. So when we were talking, okay, I have I have a million and a half dollars in an IRA. She tells me, and her son is on the phone with her. Who's in his thirties, very bright young man, and she said, and that's basically all I've got. I've got an annuity from my husband's old firm that pays all my bills." So we can invest the IRA according to plan. And that's all I've gotten. So I said, Mom, what about the $3.4 million in cash? And she said, I don't look at that as an investment. <laughs> so what happens is her husband never invested that money because it was life insurance. And she was afraid that if she took this life insurance, if she lost her husband to get this money, what happens if I lose it? So she had severe regret aversion, and she wasn't going to. So we got through all of that, and now she's invested successfully. So to follow up with your the second part, I said to you, what do you most hope will happen with your money? The second question I would ask you after you answered that, which you did, is what do you fear might happen financially for the rest of your life as it relates to your investments? I guess my response to that would be uh, a fear of some kind of market catastrophe. So I permanently lose it and uh, right. I have to live under a bridge somewhere. So now the question becomes, and that's good. So you, you, you see, we didn't rehearse this, but it's going well. So the question becomes, how do you suppose that could happen? <laughs> there have been black swan clismic events that occur that, that cause massive destruction of wealth. I see that happening in places like Argentina today, where people have value and it, it uh, goes away. You have political dysfunction things disintegrate. And if you can't gather up some stuff and get out of the country, then you know, and go somewhere and preserve value, then then you've got then you've got a real risk there. So I call that apocalyptic speculation. Now I take it back for this client, if you're the client, to something that's realistic, right? So one thing I say is about the future, there are no facts about the future. 
So to be successful investors, we can't marry a plan to an apocalyptic speculation, which is what that is. But if we take it back to reality, to the American investor, who oftentimes comes to the table with saying some version of what you said, I'm afraid I could lose my money. What if I retire and we have an 08, 09 and the financial markets and so on and so forth? I say to them, that's what makes what I do so challenging and so rewarding because people come to the table across from me seeking one thing. And that one thing, I say one word, is certainty. They want as, as much certainty about the financial future as they can get. And what I do is instead of doing what, what broadly I, the industry does, I've been in the industry a long time, they hand the investor back the illusion of certainty. This is how many analysts we have. We're going to be able to tell you which sectors to get in and out of and when. This is how many economists we have. We'll predict the next recession because economists have predicted eight of the last 15 recessions. Right? Or 15, or rather, of the last eight recessions. Right. And what I do is I say, listen, we don't claim to be able to do any of those things consistently because nobody can. What we do is we're going to not give you the illusion of certainty. We're going to teach you how to make consistently rational decisions under uncertainty. So you're afraid that you could lose all your money because of a market catastrophe. Now, the market's data for the S&P has been around since 1926. So they're coming to me afraid of something that has never happened. It can be ostensibly proven to have never happened. No one has ever lost money in, in a diversified portfolio like the S&P 500. It's at new highs, basically, as we sit here today. Yep. And so, so it's not a problem of educating people about how the financial markets work. I can show them in 1926 or, or, or whenever they were born. If you were born in 1960, the S&P was 60. I could tell them it was 60. Today, it's 4,700. So you have 70 some odd million. Never happened. So it's not a question of teaching them about the financial markets and how they work. It's a psychological problem. And I call it a problem of abnormal psychology because it's a deep belief in something, the potential permanent loss of my money investing in S&P, that has never happened. But they have a deep belief that's as soon as the clear and present danger is as soon as they invest their money, they're risking their financial future. And so that becomes the first challenge in helping them to begin to understand that everything they've been taught is not different than what we try to teach. It's the opposite. So we're taught bonds are safe and stocks are risky because of volatility being the what I call illusory threat. We want to control it by adding bonds. What I teach them is that investments that lead to the protection and growth of purchasing power, which is stocks, Stocks, again, have gone from 60 to 4,700. Bonds have stayed flat. <laughs> if you invest in a bond back then for a million, you still have a million. You don't have 70 million. So things that lead to the preservation and growth of purchasing power, stocks, they're safe. Things that lead to the freezing and diminution of purchasing power, bonds, they're risky. So it's not different than everything. So we start there. And then we tell them reality. If you're going to be a stock investor, you got to know that every year, 15%, of your money is going to appear to disappear. That's the average intra-year decline for stocks since 1980. So you've got to be willing to stoically look at your stocks and expect to see 15% appear to disappear every year. And then every five or six years, 33% the average bear market. Expect to see a third of your portfolio appear to disappear. And you've got to be able to stay on plan during that. So the key is we can teach people, again, that using our strategy over long periods of time with $10 million to invest and us telling them to only have about a million, two, two and a half years living expenses in bonds, 
versus the industry telling me at three million. You'll have likely twenty-five more million at the end of your life. However, it's simple as that, but it's not easy because we're tempted by reacting to whether we like Trump or Biden or don't like Trump or Biden, whether we're going to have a government shutdown, whether the Chinese tariff war is going to start and end, whether you, you name it. And so I equate this now to this meaning what we do to help them. One is teaching what I just said. Stocks are safe, bonds are risky, and why? The second thing is because it's simple but not easy, we have to be there on their shoulder 24-7. So the, the analogy I make, I always, unfortunately, have had a weight problem. So it's my weight fluctuates. Although I found a new doctor last year. I went in and I told him about my weight problem. And he said, get on the scale. I get on the scale. He said, you're 5'10". He said, you don't have a weight problem. You're just not tall enough for your weight. So anyway, you have a height problem. So I said, you're higher. And I like that. <laughs> so what happens is I go to, a, I go to a, a nutritionist for my weight problem. Someone refers this person. Sunday, she gives me a whole plan, explains the, the balanced meals and says, like, even better for you, Jonathan. We're gonna, I have a firm every morning. They're going to deliver the three meals. You don't have to do anything. Is it to pay for it? Come back in two weeks. Start the program. Two weeks, I come back, I gained four pounds. She said, well, what happened? Did you get the meals? I said, I got the meals. She said, I don't understand. I've never seen this before. If you got the meals, you followed the program. And so to be honest with you, I was hitting the cookie jar every night. Now, she wasn't there to stop me. When my clients want to respond to the news, and after I've educated them, I'm there guarding the cookie jar, which is their money in this case. And they can't get to it without getting past me. And if they're not getting past me without saying, I'm going to sell out in, in, in the fear of 08, Jonathan, and you can't stop me. And I'll say, you're not going to do it. Someone on my staff will do it. I won't be attached to this. It'll be the biggest financial mistake probably you'll ever make, but I'm there guarding it. If we part ways, friends, that's fine, but, you, but I'm not going to collect a fee and help you shoot yourself in the foot. So that's what we do. <laughs> Do you ever you know, get those types of phone calls, Jonathan, the panicked knee-jerk reaction types of phone calls from clients? Do you receive those relatively often? So it's an interesting question because my compliance head who joined us seven years ago, when the markets were calm, we now have about 310 clients. It was it was fine. When the markets got crazy, he came to me and he said, wow, we just went through the pandemic. We just went through the Ukraine war. 310 clients. We have three fat panicked phone calls. Three. Okay. And that's because we do the lifeboat drill before the bow ever touches the water at onboarding. Right. So that it's that's the that is the God's honest truth. We don't get the panic phone calls. They're such a calm practice. We manage about a billion two. We have, including my wife and I, only eight people. If you look at firms that manage a billion two, most of them have double the staff we have because they have portfolio managers and, and economists and 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 they need to have four service people for all the panic calls they're gonna get even when the market's not uh, crazy because they're talking about performance chasing and all this stuff. How come you, you gave me this manager and it's not doing as well as such and such index, all these crazy things. We never deal with that because we educate people the right way, right? And, and so I want to answer the second part of what, what, we, what you first asked because I don't want to miss it. It's important. We went over the belief system. There's the behavior system, and that's the real fun one. So the belief system was the money currency and risk is not volatility. The belief system, there's three categories of it. One is, I'll go through it quick. It's physical, physiological. It has nothing to do with psychology or emotions. We have, you guys have heard of uh, fight or flight, right? Oh, yeah. At the base of our brain, we've got these two walnut-shaped organs called the amygdala. And they're the fight or flight sensors. 
And the, our wetware, our human hardware wasn't developed to respond to risks that are financial. Decline. It was to dis- respond to the threat of a lion chasing us in the African savanna when we were hominids a quarter of a million years ago. And there were two hominids on a Sunday walking. One hominid says, there's a bush. He heard something in the bush. He said, that's just the wind. Second hominid screams, lion, he's in the next town in three seconds. We descended from that hominid. The first person never made it because the lion took their head off. So our amygdala are now the fastest quickest responding. When the market goes down 30%, the fight or flight response that shoots off is sell. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. So just physiologically, most people are doomed because of that response system. Then when you pile in two other things, one I call, the next one I call cultural. It's a cultural flawed behavior. So economically speaking, we're very rational. We respond to economic and financial inputs in a way that's called counter-cyclically. Our demand is counter to the price. Price goes up, demand goes counter down. Price goes down, demand goes up. Sale, something's on sale. We want to buy more of it. Something goes more expensive, we want to buy less of it. And we respond that way to almost every economic and financial input except one, price of stocks. When the price of stocks is high and rising, human nature thinks if I buy at these higher prices, somehow I'm taking less risk. And the claim I have on these assets I'm buying in the future earnings will give me a, a yield that my return will be higher if I pay higher prices. That's how we behave. Conversely, when the price of stocks is temporarily falling, human nature thinks buying at these lower prices entails more risk than if I bought at the higher prices. And my claim on these future long-term assets and earnings are going to yield me less of a return by paying lower prices. So what I tell people is reality isn't different than what human nature thinks about that economic situation. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. So we're doomed because of that too. That's a big that's a big problem. The third thing is the psychological and emotional pieces. So one I talked about, loss aversion bias. Pain of a loss is two times greater than the pleasure of a gain. And we're much more sensitive to fluctuation in 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 the value than the overall value. So we engage in the wrong strategies, things that are designed to minimize the short-term fluctuation or loss, which will also minimize our long-term main goal, long-term wealth. At the same time, there's something called we talked about regret aversion. I'm going to give you one quick example that's one of my favorite. A client came in five, six years ago, inherited five million dollars worth of stock from his grandpa. Grandpa was a pharmacist. All he ever knew and was confident in was drug companies because that's what he knew. It's called familiarity bias. We irrationally believe that if we buy and invest in things we know, they'll help us more and hurt us less than if we buy things we don't know, which, of course, is silly because we all know and don't know different things. doesn't mean our investments in them will be greater. So Herod's $5 million of Merck stock, referred by a lawyer. We do an interview decides he wants to buy a, a house for cash, 800000 and he needs to spend 200 a year. Help me with a plan. By the way, all he had before he inherited the money was about 100000 in an IRA because he didn't have a family, and he lived paycheck to paycheck. So I said, with $4 million left over, and you don't need to have a mortgage, you can spend 200000 a year, 5% or more of your portfolio because you don't have any legacy wishes. You don't want to leave money behind. So he said, okay, what are the next steps? So the next steps is we'll set up your portfolio account. You'll move the Merck stock in next week, and we'll sell it, and we'll build your portfolio, your plan. He pushes his chair back and says, what do you mean sell the Merck? So there were two things at work. One is regret aversion. Grandpa built this whole wealth by buying Merck. What if I sell it? And the outcome's terrible. I'll regret that for my life. So status quo, let's leave it in Merck. But the second thing is much more fascinating. The second thing that's related to that 
is called the endowment bias. And endowment bias is when we actually value something, an asset, Merck stock, differently if we own it and could lose it than the same exact asset if we could gain it. So the example I give is if you have a house that you want to sell, because this clients understand the non-financial. So if you had a house, uh, and I'll ask you the question, for a million, it's like a million dollars, you now hire a broker and they tell you the comparable sales recently in, in the area are a million two to a million three. How much would you list the house for sale for? Uh, a million four, probably. I'd... Right. Now, if you were bidding on the house as a buyer, how much would you offer for it? 900000 and work up from there. See, so the endowment buys works with everything. You just did it. You valued the same house at a million four if you owned it and could lose it, and you valued the same thing at 900 if you had there. So we, it, it works with everything. So what I said to the fellow, knowing this, I had a diagnosis issue. Now I needed to, to give him a solution. I said, if at the end of the call you said, what are the next steps? But instead of inheriting Merck stock, we were talking about $5 million in cash that you had inherited. And then I said to you, okay, the next steps are we're going to open an account so you can move the cash in. And Monday morning, we'll go out and put the $5 million in Merck stock. What would you say? He said, I'd probably run out of your office as fast as I could. <laughs> I said, well, you realize that's the same decision you're looking to make. So we cut through it, and, and we solved that problem. And that, that's the endowment bias. So that's the whole system of flawed behaviors, the physical, the cultural, economic, and then the psychological biases. Before we run out of time, I want to shift the conversation and ask you something a little bit different. Uh, I'm guessing that from time to time, you have clients, like you just described, who who inherit money, who inherit. Uh, give me your perspective on, on how you, on, on your relationship with a client who just inherited a, a decent amount of wealth. Because we know, I know, for example, that Purdue uh, University did it, or I'm sorry, not Purdue, Ohio State. I'm sure the Purdue people will, will yell at me about that. But <laughs> Ohio State did a survey back in 2012 that where they found that a surprisingly large percentage of inherited wealth gets spent within two years. When you have a client, maybe like a, an heir of a client, like one of your client's children, for example, who inherit, what's, what role do you play in that? How, how do you go about intervening, diagnosing, and prescribing in that context? I have to say the first thing that comes to mind is no different. In other words, whether I'm dealing with an entrepreneur, an octogenarian, a 25-year-old who inherited wealth, human nature is immutable. We're all going to respond to everything as it relates to money and uncertainty with fear and greed and envy. <laughs> we're we're going to have loss aversion bias. We hate losing twice. So, so it's not different. The one challenge that is different is, to your point, there's a group called the Williams, the Williams Consultancy Group. They did the seminal study. 90, yeah. 70% of wealth is lost by Gen 2 and 90% by Gen 3. I have my own views on it. Some of the studies, causal relationships for that are said to be, oh, grandpa didn't want to share. They didn't like to talk about wealth, so they didn't teach. My mind is, no, that's not the case because grandpa, it was very successful entrepreneurial, thought that bonds are where he should put his 30 million because he doesn't need to take risk. So now the family that he's supporting is spending 2 million a year and growing, but he's frozen all the assets. So they're going to run out by Gen 3. Right. So that's how I look at it. But the, it's being more sensitive when I meet with those people to the idea that they're statistically doomed more than everyone else because of what I know, that 90 percent will lose it by Gen 3 without this kind of intervention. Right. And that's not everybody. But that that particular demographic, I think, has to ha, brings that challenge along with it. I will say, I think we have a patriotic duty. Guys in your business in particular have a patriotic duty. I think it's important. 
to the future of the country, when you realize how many trillions of dollars, and I'm hearing numbers like $70 trillion are going to pass hands in the next 20 years or so, to make certain that that amount of wealth, that's so much money, that's so much wealth that that's never happened before. There's no sociological data on the impact of having that much wealth transmitted intergenerationally. That seems to me that the guys in your position in particular really have to get this right, because if we don't get this right, the consequences for the economic health of the country actually are in jeopardy. So you have a big job. I agree with you. And the challenge is that I follow a guy named Nick Murray. He's the behavioral coach to behavioral coaches. He's about 80 years old. Brilliant guy. Slides under the radar. Probably he's written more self-published books in, in this area and sold more than anyone else. No one's heard of him because he, he keeps it that way. But what I think he would say is, look, there's only 4,000 followers, followers of his who practice like I practice, basically. So we might be doomed because the industry is giving, in my view, the opposite advice in most cases to secure that wealth for the future. And it's, and they're just perpetuating what the father and the grandfather learned and the grandmother and the mother learned. So I don't know what the answer is to that. I'm one person and there's 4,000 others. Maybe there'll be 8,000 others, but there's a lot more wealth that needs homes than just the 8,000 of us who can provide them. So I think the answer is hopefully the industry will more and more move toward understanding that successful wealth management relies maybe one part on intellect, what we know or what the client knows, and 99 parts on temperament, what we do and what the client does. And, and once they move more toward that, there'll be a better outcome. Nothing's ever perfect. As they always say, perfect is the enemy of good. But if we just get better, then that to me is what needs to happen. And I see it happening. It's happening slowly, but it is happening. When people stop to focusing on outperformance and alpha and, and forecasting, which nobody can consistently do well. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the studies have shown the, the most positive sounding forecasters are usually the ones who are least accurate. And those are the ones, the most famous ones, I should say, is what the studies showed. And those are the ones who CNBC wants on is the most famous ones. Right. Yep. You're getting forecasting from those who are least accurate. The only correlation between the most famous people and forecasting is that their forecasts tend to be the worst. So we need to get away from all that stuff. And it's very challenging. The reason is, I'll leave with this last thought on, on media, financial media. There's a guy named Morgan Housel, who you may or may not be familiar with. He wrote a book called Psychology of Money, probably the best-selling book on in his topic. 35-year-old guy, brilliant. He just came out with another book called uh, Same as Always. And what he said on one of his recent podcasts was, in the media industry, reporters can make money three ways, and the companies who own them three ways. They can lie to people who want to be lied to, in which case they're going to become famously rich. <laughs> they can tell the truth to those who want the truth, in which case they'll make a living. Or they can tell the truth to those who want to be lied to, in which case they go out of business. <laughs> and right. the challenge is the way I practice, I'm the third person. I'm telling the truth to the client who wants the illusion of certainty handed to them. And so luckily, I've managed to succeed with it. <laughs> but generally speaking, it's the hardest way. So it's a tough thing for most people to adopt. Insight. Really good insight. It is.
It is great insight. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, for all of our listeners. And Jonathan, thank you so much for all of the wisdom that you've shared. Please check out this page of notes that I have. So thank you so much for joining us. For everybody listening in, this has been the Legacy Leaders Podcast with your hosts, Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. And for more information on Jonathan and the work that he does, and to know more information about the topics that he talked about today, you can find him at fusionfamilywealth.com. We'll link that in the show notes for you. And you can also find Jonathan on LinkedIn. Thank you so much again for joining us. This was great. Thank you, Stan and Katie. It's very nice to meet you both. Appreciate you having me. You've been listening to the Legacy Leaders Podcast with Katie Beth Hand and Stan Miller. For more information on them and the show, please visit PinnacleLegacyLaw.com. If you like what you've learned today, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.